You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. Hello, what have we here? My God, it's full of stars. Xenopod, from the year 5000. Welcome to Xenopod from the year 5000. I am your host, Sean DeRager. With me today, very excited that this finally worked out, Anya Stanley joins us. Hello, glad to be here. We have been it's toiling. Been, uh, months in the making. <laughs> We've been toiling to get this, uh, this meetup to happen. And today we are talking about Fire in the Sky uh, yes. from the year 1993. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's, I think the reason I'm on this podcast is because I made a thread about <laughs> how this movie just absolutely wrecked me when I was a kid. I saw it long before I was supposed to see it. And so um, I'm hoping that after listening to this podcast, you're going to watch it and you're going to be similarly, similarly wrecked yeah. as well. Yes, it is a fantastic alien abduction film and it's directed by Robert Lieberman. We're going to jump into it in a little bit, but Anya first, I know you're huge into the horror films and Uh I'm wondering if you had a similar affection for science fiction or kind of what you dabbled in as, as you know, little young Anya. As little young Mm -hmm. Anya, um, (laughs) my mom, uh, Stacy, she is was and is a huge nerd. She was and is a trekker. And so I grew up watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And fantastic. Uh, right, right. And so like I, I remember her sewing her own uh, Starfleet uniform for a convention back in the, the early 90s. And um, she she she's always been kind of a huge sci-fi nerd. And she was also uh, the one who got me into horror as well. Okay. But I, I would watch that with her. I'd watch old episodes of Dark Shadows with her. I would watch, well, Dark Shadows is horror, not sci-fi. Um, and then uh, as a kid, probably before I was I was old enough to properly watch it, uh, I sat down with my dad and watched uh, Planet of the Apes, the original. And, well, I don't know if that counts as sci-fi. Oh, Wait, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Planet of the Apes okay. definitely is is science fiction. That's what's great. I've talked about this before on on the podcast. It's how it's. I love how varied science fiction is, and sometimes there's a lot of there's a lot of cross pollination between different genres with science fiction, and kind of the same thing with horror. I think like they're both kind of genres that do cross pollinate a lot with other types of film. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and. Um... I think Planet of the Apes is one of those that kind of veers into adventure, it veers into dystopia. And so, um, yeah, uh, I think that Planet of the Apes was one of the earlier ones. When I was a kid, my dad at one point rented, I want to say it was like the first four Planet of the Apes movies, and we had had a marathon over a weekend. I remember eating cheese balls, planters cheese balls, <laughs> <laughs> and drinking Kool-Aid. And it was like this huge treat to be able to sit with my dad and watch these, the Planet of the Apes movies and uh, talk about the the underlying themes of them. Mm-hmm. And this, like, I was like, what, maybe 
seven, eight years old, you know, far too young to be thinking about that kind of thing. And a little bit after that, I believe he showed me Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ooh. Yeah. I can't remember if it was on TV or if we rented it, but that was that was another big one that got me into uh, hard sci-fi. Yeah. Um, so... What's so what would you say your favorite kind of subgenre of science fiction? Because you were like Fire in the Sky, you you are raising a flag high as you should for that film. Do you kind of gravitate more towards the alien abduction because they kind of toe the line with the uh, horror, or is 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 there any specific kind of subgenre of science fiction that you kind of gravitate to? Uh, I think I like satirical sci-fi, like mm. like blatantly satirical sci-fi, like uh, Starship Troopers and, <laughs> and uh, Ender's Game, stuff like that. Um, and I like anything that, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm actually really into wastelands in general mm. as far as an aesthetic. Uh, and so like Dune was huge for me as a kid. Uh, I love Dune. Of- I, I never, whenever people bring up like the hate for Dune, I'm always like, why? Like that movie looks amazing. The cast is amazing. <laughs> like, I know. So I thought that my boyfriend was not into Dune. Like it's his least favorite Lynch <laughs> uh, film. And I was just like, ah, oh, it's a good thing you told me like a year into dating because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. That's the one thing I guess we'll have to forgive. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, more of an aesthetic than an actual theme in mm-hmm. films is, is wastelands and and the idea of scavenging for everything that you have and trying to find humanity within a, a any kind of land that that won't allow for that anymore. So let's jump in to today's film. So like I said, 1993's Fire in the Sky. How does it think? What makes it move? Why does it breathe? Questions anyone would ask about a man if they'd never seen one before. So for five days, a man was borrowed. The story that Travis Walton and five other witnesses told was so unbelievable, so unimaginable, that it has become the most famous case of UFO abduction ever reported. Directed by Robert Lieberman. Um, he's done a lot of science fiction. He's done a lot of like TV series, Expanse, um, X-Files, and, and things like that. I'm trying to see like if there's anything like major that he did that I can... Uh, you know, uh, talk about, but I, he didn't really do a whole lot of like <laughs> film. Like he did like D three, the Mighty Ducks. He like did D three, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a lot, of, but a lot of television, which is very interesting because I feel like um, like Fire in the Sky does feel a bit like it could be like a television, like it's made for TV film in a way. Um, sure, yeah. It's got heavy melodrama to it. Exactly. So it's uh, it, it, where a large part of the film is this melodrama between these um, these what are they lumber lumber whatever I don't even know the name of uh, what you would call them. Are they uh, like loggers? Loggers. I was gonna say yeah. lumberjacks, but I don't know if anyone uses the term lumberjack anymore. I know. Is, is that is that like offensive or is it outdated? <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to offend any loggers out there. Do you talking about their <laughs> their profession? Um, but, uh, but, but this, but this film in particular, I remember when this, 
when this came out because uh, 1993, so I was trying to place myself. I was living in small town Iowa, which in uh, when you're in small town Iowa, you look up at the sky, you definitely can think that something's going to come down and take you out. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where you can, the sky is just so big and there's no lights out in the country and just you see everything in the sky. So, um, so this film came so out. So you've got I, full immersion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a few years before I graduated. So I had to have been like a freshman or sophomore, I guess, in high school. And this came out and it came out on VHS, of course. And what I would do when I'd go to the video store is at the time, I, w- I wouldn't recommend this anymore. But um, back then, when there wasn't the Internet and Twitter, <laughs> Facebook and all these just a shit ton of critics oversaturation, I think, of everyone kind of throwing out their opinion, um, they would have like on the box, like it would say, you know, four stars or whatever and it would have like a a positive blurb and when a movie had that for the most part with my luck with renting uh if the movie had at least one little positive blurb on there i knew it would be decent (laughs) oh okay yeah yeah i know what you mean so when when i'd be browsing you know I, i knew that if there was nothing on the cover at all i was like "Ooh, this thing is gonna be it's up in the air who i have no idea Cause I couldn't just go search and see if this is good. You know, now I just go to my phone. I'll search something up if I'm browsing around, you know? Uh, so I saw this had like the, like four stars. I was like, Oh wow. You know? So I, I, I took it home and I watched it and, um, I'm trying to think I had done some reading on it. So there, there had to have been like early, early phases of internet had to have been in 93. I can't remember. But I remember I did do some reading up on it and everyone was talking about that alien abduction scene. So I was like, all right, I got to see this. So of course, you know, uh, I I took it home and I watched it by myself. And I just really at the time, like loved the film um, as it was like, that was like, when it finished, I was like that. Now that's a science fiction film. You know, I was like, that's uh, so good. And, and I want to talk more about like my you know, reactions as you know, on rewatch. But um, when did you, you talked a little bit about when you first saw it. What was the, uh, did you say you, you watched it with, uh, with your mom? I did. Um, I was eight when this came out. <laughs> and I think that, I know, that's why I was like, when you were in high school, when it came out. Oh, <laughs> I'm man. old. I know. Oh, so um, I, I, my mom had the movie on, but I, I don't remember whether it was rented from the video store or whether it was on TV. Um, I know I was out of school for the summer. I was just putting around doing dumb kid stuff. And I see this weird looking movie on TV and my mom just kind of pats the couch beside her and she invites me to sit and watch with her, which she often did. That's how I saw uh, like Dark Shadows. I think I saw the original It movie that way. Um, I watched a lot of horror movies that way, just <laughs> sitting on the couch with her. And um, I sat down with her and, and watched it. And it was kind of funny, the calm with which my mom wrecked her daughter's psyche with that movie <laughs> uh, was was just, I mean, to be fair, I always had leanings towards like macabre and weird mm-hmm. stuff. But um, I think I think in her mind, I could handle this because at the time I was reading like Alvin Schwartz's scary stories to read in the dark and goosebumps and stuff like that. But no like R.L. Stein's story could have prepared me for the abduction scene that, yeah. that you know, we're going to discuss later. It, it jacked me up proper. Um, I had nightmares for weeks. Um, but it was the, the film, watching the film with her was like a gateway into more morbid stuff. I, I definitely remember picking up uh, her 
hardback copy of Stephen King's Skeleton Crew after that and reading that. And then I went with my dad to the video store and, and I watched Creep Show. Yeah. I, th- I think after Creep Show, I think I rented Dr. Giggles. <laughs> I am amazed that he let me rent that. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was that. And then I think uh, The Boys from Brazil, which isn't horror, but it's definitely, you know, it's messed up Nazis doing like <laughs> scientific experiments and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely a gateway horror film for mm-hmm. me. Um, I started watching Monster Vision after that, and that was uh, so. Fire of the Sky actually, uh, I credit that heavily towards my being a horror fan today. Actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely. I, I need to watch this with my daughter because she's she's thirteen, so she's kind of budding into a little horror fan herself and science fiction like genre. She's definitely um, growing into a genre fan, and she mm-hmm. appreciate, appreciates like the nuance of. The films and the and the scares and just the macabre things and uh, it's so funny because when you meet her she just looks like this nice little you know innocent thing and but she has this like she's she's like me where she's drawn to the uh, you know the 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 like I, I love the word macabre I've always loved that mm-hmm. word <laughs> I know I like just saying creepy. it yeah it's great um, I used to have a little comic strip uh, comic strip back in college called Macabre High about monsters in oh, okay. high school. I need to bring that back. Um, you should. I know, huh? Especially, you know, for your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll turn it over to her and she can run with it. Um, but uh, but no, the, the Fire in the Sky definitely is, it would be on my list for kind of gateway films if you're uh, a parent uh, trying to kind of uh, guide your child into this stuff because uh, that's kind of the fun of being like a, a genre, a parent who's into genre films and things like that. Like it's fun to kind of guide our kids, <laughs> you know, and you, and you've been yeah. doing that with your, with your, uh, your oldest, you know, with these, uh, uh, the, the makeup and, and the things like that. It's been, it's really cool. Uh, fun oh, to yeah. see other parents kind of doing that too. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You're not the only one that's, uh, <laughs> probably on a list somewhere for showing their kids horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. We're fine. It's okay. Um, but, uh, I wanted to jump in before. So, so I want to talk kind of, you know, we'll, we'll dissect this movie a little more from kind of a, a, a rewatch point of view. I rewatched it recently, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the true story. And that's what's great about this film. It's one of those based on a true story movies. And yeah. uh, so it's based off actually based off a book written by Travis Walton. And he is the guy who is uh, who does get taken in this film. And uh, the real story is, you know, back in 1975, uh, he was out with his with his buddies. Um, uh, they, they were tree thinning contractors. That's the actual term. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, the real story is really real story is that there this guy, you know, Travis Walton, uh, disappeared in the forest when he was uh, working with his uh, his his crew. And his friends searched for about twenty minutes or whatever. They couldn't find anything. They went back to town, told the police. Um, and, and then they go from there where, you know, he, he shows up and, um, the, the film itself, I guess, takes a lot of, li- lot of liberties with Travis Walton's actual story, mm-hmm. uh, cause it wasn't yeah. as fucked up or scary <laughs> as they like, as you can do with the film, um, a little more kind of, it was a little like, I guess, procedural, like medical experiment procedural, like nothing, you know, really, really crazy. And, um, and they all, I guess, did take lie detector tests. 
and the light like those tests came back as like inconclusive but um but yeah the, but the, the the film itself i guess does take a lot of liberties did you read anything about the the real story with travis walton i i did read that they later they later took um a second set of polygraph tests, mm-hmm. which they did pass uh, okay. those those loggers, um, but I did not read the original book. Uh, I, I have heard from other people who have read the book um, that yeah, they take some serious liberties, as you said. Um, but you know, that's Hollywood. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, uh, I think the book is called what uh, the Walton Experience, and the so Walton it's kind of. Yeah, so it's kind of one of those things where people are like, well, did he just kind of fabricate this to, you know, to make some money? Because it has helped, like he did make basically a career out of this. Right. Um, And I guess just recently he did some uh, consultant work on, on, uh, on a film. I'm not sure which film. I wish I had, I wish I had that pulled up here. But uh, I did, I just saw that like yesterday um, when I was searching around online. That he, so he's been doing like consulting work on, you know, different kind of UFA, UFO, uh, UFO and science fiction films. So, you know, it has, you know, butted into a little career for him. So, but we'll never know. And that's what's kind of fun right. about all this. <laughs> it is. It's one of those um, based on true event stories that takes a huge creative license with its most sensational moments. Um, although I I feel like upon revisiting the movie, I don't know if are we, are we going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, we'll mo- yeah, we're definitely going to move into that now for sure. Oh. Um. Without spoiling anything for those who haven't seen it, I feel like the the story mm. kind of peters out a bit, and um, I feel like if if you're going to take such great liberties with with the the original story, you could you could embellish the end a little bit instead of kind of making a, the denouement so floppy. Mm. <laughs> it kind of just eh, it didn't really conclude in a way that that I found satisfying. Right. Yeah. No. I I can definitely see that. So let's uh, let's run down the cast a little bit because uh, there, there's some there's some faces in here that uh, that I like. I mean, Robert Patrick is basically one of the leads uh, in it. Uh, D.B. Sweeney plays Travis Walton. I think he does a great job. Very believable. Uh, Peter Berg is in this. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Peter Berg because I actually think this is possibly his strongest performance in a film. Cause he always kind of has, you know, he's went to be more of a, you know, more of a director. He shows up every now and then in the films he directs, but, uh, have you, and of course, most notably he's known for, um, um, oh gosh, oh gosh. What is it? Shock shocker. Oh yeah. 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 Shocker. <laughs> okay. Um, I had, I had the like stuff that the actors had all been in, but mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Berg's was missing and so I had nothing in parentheses next to his name on my notes and I was like oh man that name sounds familiar but I could as soon as he said shocker I got it okay yeah (laughs) there you go um but uh like he's uh because shocker he it's you know uh very campy very campy film I'm I'm double checking to make sure uh make sure he was in shocker I'm pretty sure he was yeah he was in shocker yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, okay, all right, all right, here we go. Um, but the, but, the whole cast, it's it's an all-star, like a murderer's row of character actors <laughs> yeah. in this in this film. Really before, you know, now we recognize all of them as character actors, but, you mm-hmm. know, before they would just, I, I don't know if, how well-known they were at the time as character actors. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, like, like Robert Patrick, definitely. But uh, some of the other ones, I'm not so sure. Like maybe not, not Henry, Henry Thomas. He was still kind of, uh, kind of a greenhorn. I mean, he, he had been Elliot and E.T., right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then prior to Fire in, in the Sky. In a, oh, I mean, in the 80s, is the child actor. He's in Cloak and Dagger, which is a fantastic little uh, film oh, there. But okay. E.T., um, yeah, just a lot of stuff as, as a kid. But I, but I don't, you know, I know around this time, um, yeah, he didn't really do anything because uh, he he must have you know he must have gone to school finished school and everything and then he's in the in the early nineties he started appearing like around ninety yeah ninety two he started appearing in more and more things and Fire in the Sky was kind of the first uh, film he'd been in, in in a few years like an actual uh, kind of a major role and then mm-hmm. after that of course he moves into more you know bigger and bigger things um, uh. Let's see what was the what was the big one I just saw I can't think I can't see it now. That's the worst. This is where I got to edit right here. Stupid stuff. <laughs> um, where'd it go? Anyway, um, so he started yeah, getting more roles. He was in Legends of the Fall. He was oh Suicide Kings. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, Suicide oh, Kings, yeah. things like that. Oh, Legends but, of the Fall. Oh, I haven't <laughs> seen that in ages. That was such a nice movie. But he still is one of those actors, though. He still is, even though he was a big star in the '80s or the, in these big films. He still he still did settle into kind of a character actor mode. I mean, you know, Dead Birds, and then a lot of TV and things like that. I don't. He never really got into like you know leading man uh, roles. Um, have you? Seen, oh, he was in Gerald's Game. Have you seen? Gerald's game. I haven't watched. He it. was. Oh gosh, he was. His character in Gerald's game was. Oh boy. Yeah, he was in Gerald's game. <laughs> was that? Would that? Would you consider that more of like a kind of a character actor role for him? I guess not. I mean, okay. you know, that was. I haven't seen it, so I. It's different. one of those things I need to. I need to watch. I don't. It's one of those movies that I'm like, am I in the mood to watch this? <laughs> you know what? And Gerald's Game is one of those movies where you kind of got to be in the mood to to sit through it. It's not bad. It's it's a mm-hmm. great adaptation, but mm-hmm. it's just yeah. It's it's like listening to Nirvana or The Doors. You have to be in the mood for it. Yeah, I, it took me forever to. I mean, I couldn't get myself to go to the theater to see Hereditary, and then I finally came out, and I was like, okay, it's home, and it's in my house now. I need to watch this thing. But I'm I'm very weird with like movies that I know are going to be a little intense. I'm like, oh, do I want to sit through a theater and be yeah. <laughs> intense in a theater with strangers? I don't know. So, all right. Oh, but uh, you, you liked Hereditary too. Oh my God. Hereditary scared the shit out of me. I loved it. Yeah. It's fantastic. And that, that's high praise. And of course, some people would be like, well, I don't, I don't get scared, you know, but for uh. me, where I, this is a sci-fi podcast. We're talking a little bit about Hereditary really quick because we're just in all about these little rabbit trails. Um, Hereditary kind of had that impending sense of dread all the way through it. And on a personal note, as someone who's experienced grief in a family, uh, it nailed those notes like so much. I, I, I was kind of getting like flashbacks to like 10 years back when my, our family went through some really heavy shit. And, and, and so mm-hmm. if a filmmaker can capture that and kind of put it into a movie, like right on and, and you and I you can bring someone back to that. Like that's that's some craft craftsmanship right there. And then it gets a little bit batshit towards the end, which is always great with cults and batshitness and uh, mm-hmm. uh and batshitness. That's uh, that's the I, best way to describe the uh, the third act I of that. Welcome movie. that 
because it is kind of a release and okay there we're going a little more crazy here but it's yeah yeah fantastic um anyway mini review of hereditary in our fire in the sky discussion <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when you get two horror fans talk, trying to talk about science fiction if we're gonna exactly. go off <laughs> yeah it's gonna happen somehow i'm gonna get halloween six uh, uh mentioned <laughs> yes. in here other, other than just now. Right. There's got to be a, or, an organic way of get, uh, bringing that in. We got we'll to. Exactly. Um, so other actors in here. James Garner is in it and he is the, you know, podunk town sheriff. He is great. I think this is one of my favorite roles uh, of his. I always I love James Garner. Like whenever he shows up, I'm like, right. oh, man, it's just James. He just has that cool grandpa swagger. You know, like, <laughs> Grandpa, he's a, a nice, just a nice guy, you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and especially in, in any kind of position of authority. Mm hmm. Yeah. He is. He, he kind of he rules with a steady hand, kind of. Yeah. Kind of a sheriff there in town. And, and he's trying to get to the bottom of it. He's like, OK, so these these guys were trimming trees and they lost their friend. Uh, I don't really believe them. So, um. Yeah, we're not going to rehash the whole plot, but what uh, some let's talk about some of the things that we really did love about the film. Um, I I love so this takes place in 1975, and for me, I think they did a great job of really kind of putting you there in this small town, Snowflake, Arizona, in 1975. You're in these dirty kind of grungy bars. It feels like the clothing, everything about it, just even their the the hair and makeup. I felt like I was in 1975 and a lot of times when films try to do the period thing, uh, it's a lot of times a hit or miss, especially on lower budget. But, uh, but this thing I felt really nailed the feel of the time. What did, what did you think about that? I did. I, I like, now I wasn't around in 1975, but well, you know, based on pictures I, I, I saw I, of like my parents in 1975, yeah, <laughs> based, based on, you know, some outside knowledge yeah, there. I, yeah, I feel yeah. like um, I do like the 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 scene setting that they they did outside of the alien ship, and um, I liked the the small town feel because I feel I feel like that's something that can be easily messed up is the small town feel. Mm -hmm. um, now you you'd probably have a better perspective on that because I grew up in southern california like in san diego <laughs> and poway there there right. there are no small towns right down there. no yeah um yeah so i grew up in garner iowa uh is where i when i was 10 was relocated to from the bay area california was thrust into small town life and yes uh definitely this film nails that because when you're in a small town like everyone knows everybody uh, you can't get away. I, you know, I remember working at the grocery store and I saw everybody like every day, like every day I would see almost, I feel like the, almost the entire town. I would see every single one of my friends' parents, my friends would come in, you know, it's just, you would see everybody every single day and that has its charms, but it also has its drawbacks, especially when there's deep, dark, deep, dark secrets kind of underneath and you kind of learn something about somebody and uh, all that just kind of hovers there. And I feel like they really do get this feel in this t in this town because each of these guys kind of has their own thing. They're known for different things. Uh, so we got D.B. Sweeney's character is dating uh, Robert Patrick character his, his character, Mike Rogers. Uh, dating his uh, is it his sister who's living uh, in their house yeah i think so yeah i think it's so you you have that kind of tension there of these two guys you have the there's the one 
bad boy guy. Um, which one was he? I can't, I can't remember their names, but you had the one bad boy that everyone knows, oh, that's just the drifter, but everyone kind of... Based... What was that, uh, Craig Sheffer's character? Uh, um, Alan, Alan Dallas? I think so, yes. I'm trying to the only one we hadn't sure. mentioned yet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, everyone, you know, you, you may not be around or the people may not know someone very well, but this town is small enough that word travels fast about people and you get that, you yeah. know, you get that in the bar, you get that when James Garner's character, uh, comes in to interview them. And definitely there's some skepticism because of the, basically this ragtag group of tree trimmers, their, their previous, I guess, reputation, I guess, uh, in the town. So it's kind of, it makes sense that they would kind of be treated, I guess, uh, a little bit skeptically when all this right. when all this happens especially because there's tension between um between Craig Sheffer's character and um and and the Travis Walton character you know there's that so they're like did shit go down are they covering for him did, did it was Travis Walton murdered like are they all covering it up and um so that original scene so we we've, we've mentioned okay so Travis uh, Travis Walton does get abducted and what did you think about that scene when, uh, when he, he they see the fire they see the fire in the sky is, is in the title, and Travis Walton walks towards the light and things go from there. How, how do you think that was executed? I, I think it's one of my favorite uh, parts of the film, and I kind of think it really sets things up nicely with with everything. From what I recall, this was the scene that I walked in on when my mom. Uh, oh, really? Um, allowed me to. It was like <laughs> just before that when they were when they were driving home from mm-hmm. from work. Um, so so right at the beginning of the movie, basically, um, and Walton gets out of the truck and he gets struck by that bright beam of light and just that shot of him being struck by the the beam. Yeah. Um, that terrified me as a it's kid. Iconic. But you know, I wasn't about to get up from that couch. You know, <laughs> keep watching. I'm no punk. <laughs> and so, um, and then he flies like several feet backwards. And that was something that I had never seen before in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, I, I was eight. So, you know, <laughs> of course I hadn't seen anything like that. But um, that was just, that was utterly terrifying that, you know, basically light and some kind of unseen energy could knock you back like that. And there was so much tension in that scene right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was moments after the credits. Um and then, as I recall, they think he's in their minds. He just died. He's dead. Right. He's gone. And they take off. They yeah, don't even go back for their buddy. Yeah, they're not going to hang around and see what the hell did that. <laughs> they're right. out of there. They're they're gone. And uh, if that were him, I'd be pretty pretty offended at that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, they thought he was gone. They left. And so, uh, from what I remember, one of them goes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Robert Patrick's character, Mike Rogers. He goes back and, um, but you know, obviously Walton's nowhere to be found because he's occupied elsewhere. And so that, that initial abduction scene is for me, it was, it was absolutely jarring to watch. Um, and for someone who had previously like read a couple of goosebumps books, you know, read some (laughs) scary stories in the dark, that was, that was, uh, uh, we don't. We didn't say this back in 1992 or 93, but I was shook as a kid. <laughs> Hell yeah! And, and you know, and, and it still is a really effective film, uh, really effective scene. 
And especially like for me, so I was a, kind of I was a child of the 80s. I saw a lot of Spielberg um, growing up. It was like that was like my film school was, I mean, Spielberg and George Lucas, of course. And so when this movie came out, I, this was this was just when did Jurassic Park come out? Um, I'm trying to think when we were when digital effects started kind of coming into play. Was it the same year? I think I think it was. Um see yeah 93 yeah same year so um but but i mean this movie is completely practical and it it holds up with all these 80s movies that i love especially the ones involving aliens and and things like that it um it's simple the use of light and the use of i guess wires i would imagine wires uh and and all that is it's so effective and it still holds up and it's kind of a testament to the argument between digital and, and practical. And I think for me, you know, now if, if they're used together, um, they can both benefit each other at, yeah. but at this time, especially in the nineties, when she started, once Jurassic Park hit, everyone try, was trying to do digital and with mixed results. And so this was before all that hit. And it's, uh, the, it looks great. It still holds up even today, which, which I think makes me realize that this film is going to stand the test of time. I think this is going to be a film that people will, young people especially will start discovering and 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 fall in love with this as well but but yeah like that scene and then just the tension of it and you just feel like the the tension with all the characters you've you've spent enough time with each character to kind of get how they would react there's that tension between everybody you know should we go back shouldn't we go back and and then it goes from there and then it kind of kind of then the movie shifts and transitions into kind of more of a mystery, I guess, and a, a little yeah. bit of a police procedural because um, we really don't know. I mean, we know as the audience what the hell went down, but mm-hmm. no one else knows. And it does a good job, I think, of bringing you into that investigation, even though we've seen the abduction. But it does bring you into kind of, uh, you almost like wonder, you know, are, is, is this a reliable narrator? You know what I mean? Is this a reliable narrator? Yeah. Did something really happen? And we just haven't been shown it yet. And you you get wrapped up in these in these characters, and it, and and it goes through that for for quite a while. Like this isn't one of those movies that's gonna that is trying to shock you with alien abduction, alien stuff every ten minutes or whatever. It's a very patient film, and if it and it takes you through this whole character arc and kind of mystery with once James Garner's character enters trying to figure out what happened and with the mm-hmm. interrogations and, and the lie detector tests and, and, and all that, what did you think about that like, portion of the film? Once it transitions into there, did it kind of hold your attention I, still it, it now? Did. It and then, did. Okay. And I thought that it, um, it was a good call in that they didn't spend too much. They seemed to have enough confidence in that one st- scene that one abduction yeah. sequence um in order to to not linger there too much mm-hmm. and um in in making it kind of a melodrama and a partial police procedural um i think it, it rounded out the story a little better and kept it from being this one note alien abduction story um by dealing with what's going on on the ground as well as up in the air mm-hmm. and uh the the fact that it, it did so well, it's 
it's mostly because I think of the cast. I think the cast is what really, yeah. really knocked it out of the park and, and sold that melodrama and sold the tension between all of these men. And uh, even the even the supporting cast, the uh, the, uh, the the people in the town, mm-hmm. you know, selling that that suspicion and that that weird regarding of of all of these men and and that whole small town, that that dark secrets in the small town feel that that Stephen King made an entire career out of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I I I I do get kind of, and it, maybe it's just because Stephen King did spend so many books or his career you know, kind of unraveling the small town, but it did feel Stephen Kingish uh, during the, during some of the, those scenes. Definitely. I, I would get that feel from there. Yeah. And Stephen King himself, he's not afraid to put some aliens in the end of his, his no, stories either. Not at all. So, I mean, the, the Stephen King comparison is, is totally an apt one. So a lot of people can think that this movie is just like a, you know, an excuse to get to the this alien abduction and um i think we're doing i mean this is one of those films it's been around for a while we haven't spoiled the specifics but definitely you know it was even advertised i believe in in the little write-ups and, and things uh they did kind of uh hedge all their bets on this scene and uh it's it's basically shown um in in I guess I guess it would be a flashback, but it's his perception of of what happened. Or I guess, but right. um, gosh, where do we even start with that scene? <laughs> I mean, it is still like one of the most impressive alien abduction uh, uh, creature work. Just kind of the overall space that they. I mean, it feels way more expensive, I think, than it was. Yeah. And they do a really good job of, like I've said earlier, with wires kind of giving you that feel of what I mean, it, it it's so realistic and it's still mind boggling that it holds up. What uh, do you remember? Can, can you can you give me kind of a comparison of when you first saw it and then when you rewatched it kind of kind of thing or um, I, I can because it was basically the same. Uh, <laughs> when, when when I first saw it as a kid, I was blown away. I was terrified of the because they do show the aliens mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, at least you know uh, uh, Travis Walton's you know what he was able to see of the aliens. And um, even as an adult, um, I remember reading an interview with uh, one of the uh, makeup. Uh, a special effects artist uh, that worked on this movie and he had said that they they didn't w- when they were doing the aliens they weren't too confident in the way they looked as a whole mm-hmm. and so they would try to kind of film them in the shadows and only show you quick glimpses of them and i didn't get that vibe at all that that the aliens were subpar in any way they, they t- terrifying as, as an adult um, because I still found them really creepy and like little little fetuses just running around. That's what they look like, <laughs> little fetuses. Um, 
with big old heads just running around. Remember that? There was that Beavis and Butthead adjacent show with that guy with the big head. Oh, yes. And he had like the um, veins sticking out of his forehead. <laughs> I, I think it was a name like Big Head or something like that. That's what they remind me of. Interesting. And, um, but it was it was much scarier. They had little beady eyes. It was, it was far scarier. Um, but from a technical standpoint, I think that uh, I think the, the DP was Bill Pope. Um, and his eye for panoramics and these mm. neutral rural palettes. There was there were no like bright colors in this movie mm. at all. Um, it's pretty amazing when you consider how how well he instills a sense of paranoia into those shots, um, especially in the the abduction sequence. Uh, not not the first one where Malton is abducted, but uh, when he wakes up and has this festival of horrors inside of the. <laughs> the, the alien pod, wherever they are, um, there's there's a heavy sense of paranoia, mm-hmm. both inside of the ship and on the ground in the small town. And I thought that was really cool how Bill Pope was able to make both of the, those things happen, both in the air and on the ground. So I think technically the movie still holds up very well. Yeah, it looks it look it looks great, and, and yeah, like and it's from his perspective and he kind of wakes up right in this room and i love seeing those alien spacesuits that he kind of yeah. like floats up to it's such it's so creepy and effective and uh it, it it gives you a good sense of what your your i mean your imagination is still going you're like oh, well what the hell is going to go in there like yeah. what what am i about to see <laughs> what are they going to do with that thing right yeah and uh you know, and then I, I I just love the the dread of him waking up, not knowing where he is. You, you can get the sense of disgust when he puts his hand into something slimy. I mean, it's just like, yeah. and doesn't he end up in like a, a half a decomposed corpse somehow? See, I, I didn't like, know how much of the, the scene you wanted to like go into, but I like have I have this entire breakdown of how horrifying this, this scene was for me as a kid. Wait, I mean, but yes, that is one of the parts, and it is a half decomposed. It looks like a human. Yeah, no, yeah, or, or something. And right. um, Robert you know, Lieberman is going for like pure terror here, and it fully succeeds. Which, which, which surprises me that he didn't just jump into horror because it's like the, his, the, the direction of, I mean, he, like I said, he did some science fiction TV, but he never attempted like a horror feature length film. I don't know if he just got comfortable and, you know, just got gigs and just kept on working, which could have had, could happen. I mean, he has a, you know, probably has a family to take care of and everything. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he never really jumped into horror. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, x-files um you know episodes he directed because i guess that would he would have had that little playground there you know with x-files but yeah and part of the terror in this abduction sequence is that he he doesn't explain nothing is explained in those few minutes nothing at all you have no you have as much information as travis walton does yeah and um you're you're running on the same amount of information, so there's a lot of like what the fuckery going on in these scenes, which adds to the terror. Um, like I, I guess, I guess if we're gonna run through it. He he wakes up yeah, in like a might as a, well. Spo- a, look, a pod. Like, here, yeah. Here we go. Spoiler alert. If you don't want to be spoiled with Fire in the Sky, <laughs> pause the podcast right now. 
watch Fire in the Sky, and then come back. We're near the end. You got we probably got, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes left. And yeah. come back and, and finish. But we, 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 we need to talk about this scene because there's so much going on with yes. it that it would just, it would be a shame to just not talk about it. But I think at this time, maybe a lot of people, I don't know. I don't know. This is one of those movies that I feel like a lot of people still haven't seen and it's kind of still, you know. Right. The spoiler alert, it's a, it's, it, that's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. All right. So spoiler alert. And then now let's, let's, let's break this shit down. Okay, so he wake, Travis wakes up in a pod of sorts. It looks kind of like H.R. Geiger-ish, you know, this, mm-hmm. this whole setup. Um, actually, it looks a lot like uh, the, the pods of the Matrix, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the walls. Um, by the way, Bill Pope, the DP for this film, was also the cinematographer for the Matrix. I was just about to Google Bill Pope and see, like, where, where, <laughs> what has he done? Because um, the Matrix was a few years later, right? Uh, yeah. Uh I want to say that was, well, gosh, was it, was it like 90, it couldn't have been as late as 97, 90, right? That was 99, yeah, 99. So, 99. But, but definitely, oh, wow. definitely he took some things from Fire in the Sky and uh, definitely. Yeah, that, there was definitely a similar aesthetic yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, Travis wakes up in this pod and he finagles his way out of it to find that the rules of physics are a little different <laughs> in this new domain he's in. He's floating around. Uh and by the way, the camera work here is pretty sweet. Uh, without spoiling too much about the sequence, well, we're spoiling the whole sequence, but <laughs> the POV at some points has like this hovering, free-floating effect that's totally seamless. There's no bumps, yeah. no shakes of the camera. It's all surreal, very womb-like suspension. And then on top of that, the set pieces here are phenomenal. Like there's, there's, like I said, H.R. Geiger level uh, biomechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a little more, I guess, minimalist. Uh, a little more earthy. I, I think the earth tones have something to do with that. It's yeah. not. It's not like this dark gray like you would see on on in the alien movies. Yeah. Well, I feel like that if it definitely feels there's the, there's the lived in feel, but I feel like a lot of modern kind of science fiction things are a little too shiny and too clean. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it. I love the dirty, grimy, you know, spaceship. And organic yeah, yeah. and then they, they they nail that in this film yeah. and so uh a series of unfortunate events befall <laughs> poor travis and it, it ratchets up the horror for the rest of us and then the aliens roll up and then we're we're really cooking with peanut oil at this point um i do believe industrial light and magic was uh, the company that worked on this movie and uh, they came up with these nasty looking little benjamin button looking fetuses on on <laughs> stork legs they're all yes. these really skinny little legs that's the that's the best way i can describe them um and the the mechanics are a little stiff here and there but you know this was it's 1993 this was made with practical effects in 1993 you know um, yeah i like that more than a fully fluid cg creation and maybe that's just because yeah. i'm a child of the 80s <laughs> you know what i mean i'm used to seeing that but Oh, it, yeah, it, yeah, it uh, there's just something about it where it just feels, especially something like this, like a little more terrifying. The way yeah. they kind of slam the apparatus into his mouth, and you know what I mean. The way they're kind of moving things is just as kind of like, like they're not being insanely careful, but they're surgical, like <laughs> surgical yeah. stuff going on, but they're not 
being too careful. So that kind of even makes it a little more tense. And I don't know if yeah, that's unintentional he's being treated or not. Like, like an animal, like an animal being <laughs> tested upon. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely, a, yeah, I guess the mechanics do kind of figure into that. Um, <laughs> it does make it a little more jarring. They... They are ugly and they are mean little guys. And they, they put this this poor guy through the ringer during the examination part of the sequence. There's an examination part. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, like a portion of the alien abduction stories that we've all heard and made probing jokes about. But I, <laughs> I did not laugh during any of these moments. No. Like if you've ever seen Cronenberg's Dead Ringers um, and recoiled at some of those medical instruments that Jeremy Irons is waving around in that movie, you're going to have a ball with yeah. the, the mouse tools that they pull out in this movie. <laughs> uh, they, they vacuum seal this guy. He's screaming the whole time oh and they God. vacuum seal him to a table and then they shove this. It's like this brown liquid Vegemite <sighs> that they, <laughs> they put in his, in and around his mouth, which I guess it's to make him more comfortable. I guess that that's the humane uh, treatment. I guess yeah, it's the, they're they're greasing up. Uh, they're lubing, <laughs> lubing him up. <laughs> it was so gross. They put this in and around his mouth. He is screaming the entire like four minutes of this <sighs> sequence. By the way, um, they shove this into his mouth, um, and then they shove this like it's like a roto rooter down his throat, <laughs> and uh, they put this clockwork orange ass looking eyelid spreader over one eye and i guess maybe that was to make the process more humane because there, maybe there were complaints in the past uh you know a whole investigation into the ethical practices of the the benjamin button aliens <laughs> but uh it was uh so yeah now they have the, the vegemite lube and the vegemite lube does absolutely nothing because like the they bring this this jousting lance of a needle out uh, for further experimentation. They put it into like right next to his eye. And I think at some point they actually put it into his eye. They don't show that part. Uh, I think it's implied, but the needle is what gave me nightmares as a kid. Uh, I would love to say that it traumatized me so much that I have a phobia of needles now, but I have like, I have like 13 tattoos on my body. So (laughs) that's different. No, that's different. No, no, I I got, (laughs) I got, I've got a tattoo. I'm not as, I'm not as awesome and cool as you are, but, um, <laughs> but no, but, but yeah, I, I don't like needles like shots, but, uh, but I've, I've, you know, I do want to get more ink work done. Yeah. You know, I'm not afraid of that, but, but you, you, you start, you, you put a, you get a needle and a syringe or whatever and want to fill it with liquid and plunge it in my body. I'm then, I'm not going to like that. Yeah, wow. and there's this, this POV <laughs> shot of, of this needle coming straight down at the screen, and that was that was enough to make me wake up in a cold sweat for mm-hmm. weeks on end. It was it was horrible. My mom just let me sit through it. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't make me leave the room or nothing. She was just sitting there smiling. Making you strong. <laughs> this is so. gonna make my daughter strong. She's gonna appreciate this one day. Right, right, and the the creatures. Um, are just so ugly <laughs> that we can only shy away of fear. But the um, that whole examination sequence is, even though we've heard those stories before, those have been told by countless UFOlo- UFOologists, UFOlogists, and sure. you know uh, uh, alleged abductees. Even though we've heard those kinds of stories, this sequence is still incredibly frightening and invasive. It's a very invasive scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that 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 scene makes the movie. Definitely, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And and it it all feels cohesive to the story and and you know, like I said, it's not like we're going through a bunch of bullshit just to get to this crazy intense scene. Um right. what I read was so back to how they they how they changed, you know, the uh the story. I guess the screenwriter um Tracy Torme said that the uh, the that um the executives were the ones that had a problem with Walton's abduction story. Like once he got to the spaceship, they're like, "Yeah, this is kind of boring." I guess like he gets to fly this in the book. He says he flies the spaceship, and they, you know it's just kind of not. He's like, "That is this isn't scary enough." So they're like, I guess they told the scriptwriter to like just go nuts and bring us something fucked up. So uh, Tracy Torme did. <laughs> Yeah, she she definitely went there. And um, wait, she he. I'm looking that up Tracy. right now. I'm looking that up right now. God, I don't want to His, miss Jennifer. It's a he. Song. It's Tracy a he. Okay. Is a he. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tracy. Well, he wrote. Uh, from <laughs> what I'm seeing here, he wrote several episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation. He wrote. Uh, he was a writer on Carnival Sliders, and it looks like he was an SNL writer from yeah. '82 to '83. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he really, uh, he really let fly on this this, this one Cause, scene because this is like everything terrifying, like anything anyone finds terrifying is in this short. Like, is it about ten minutes or is it less? It's a short ah. scene, but it is like you get a bang for your buck in this scene. Yeah, you do. God, like, I don't want to oversell it though. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna be expecting this masterpiece. It was, but but I don't know. It's a fucking good scene, everybody. It is. You got to respect it. You definitely need to respect it. And but that's the thing. Like when the critical reception of this film, uh, it sounds like everyone uh, loved that scene. And uh, I guess uh, Roger Ebert loved the scene in the craft, inside the craft. He didn't. uh, he didn't like the ending, so he says because of the ending, it was a bit frustrating for him. But yeah, because it is it is kind of an anticlimactic ending. It is, and I guess that was maybe that was their way of trying to keep true to the the story. Um, uh, yeah, Travis Walton's story, but I felt like they could have could have done something with it, something. Um, it, it waddles back and forth between small town drama and that real real deal Holyfield sci-fi horror. But I feel like it um, the arcs didn't really go anywhere uh, by the end of the film. There, there wasn't. Right. Right. Yeah, All the there arcs. Was, there was, yeah, the the character arcs are kind of set up at the beginning with all the, the character dyna- dynamics between everybody. It kind of, you know, um they could have at least like they did all this. They changed up the the story for the abduction scene. Um, they could have at least put a nice bow on it with it. Just kind of you know, but yeah, they kind of just. But I guess that maybe that's how life is. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. You go through a traumatic experience like this, and then everyone just kind of goes their separate ways. And uh, but yeah, no, it, it does end up in in and uh, anticlimactically and. Uh, Robert Patrick kind of has a really bad wig at the end. That's the one costume problem I have, I think, is the end of the film where he's been living in this cabin and he's supposed to be, you know, his hair's grown, grown out and everything. 
<laughs> no problem with the the Chuck E. Cheese level animatronics with the aliens, but uh, no, no, the wig, Robert you know, the Patrick's wig, wig yeah, is yeah. gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm weird like that uh, for some reason, but but yeah. Um, so one one other thing I wanted to bring up too is um, there's another great frantic kind of tense filled scene tense scene when they are searching when they find out when they when he when Robert Patrick I think he he gets the phone call right and yes. they're and they go out and they're searching for him in the rain and they find him you know uh and he, he, he is he only lit with uh the headlights of the car but he's completely yeah. naked and, and and it's just that's a shocking well done scene like there's so many amazing little uh vignettes you know of tension in this film uh, surrounded by this melodrama, you know, and um, I think that uh, if you appreciate, if you appreciate kind of a, a story that is patient and kind of takes the time setting things up, I definitely think you'll get a lot out of this. And then there's enough little jolts here and there that will, you know, appease uh, that that genre side of you. But overall, um, thoughts on on fire in the sky. Uh, overall, I think if you if you want to chop on some popcorn and get in some good scares with a decent amount of dread thrown in and some really cool visuals, uh, you can you can dig in on this one even if you didn't see it as a kid. Um, when I talked about this film on Twitter, someone commented that the movie would have been best as a short film leading up to and including the abduction sequence and the examination scene. Hmm. And I have to say that I agree. I, th- I think it would have actually worked better as a short film. Um, That's interesting. But, right, right. But it's. I still think overall this film is worth a watch or worth a revisit if you saw it back in the day like I did. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I it, This one still holds up. It is, uh, it's available in HD on Vudu. Or I guess any streaming, uh, any streaming platform. It's not on Blu-ray or anything, and it's on it's on DVD. But it has a it looks pretty good in uh, in in HD streaming. So definitely, definitely at least give it a rent and check it out. Um, it was on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure if it still is. It might. It was in 2017. It was in it was on Netflix. So you might want to check Netflix or Hulu and, and see if it's there. But uh, but yeah, no, I I. I really love this flick. I think that if you're a science fiction fan, an alien abduction fan, there's a lot to chew on here. That's interesting about the the short film. If it was a short film, I I I'm kind of torn on that. I don't know because there's a lot that I do like as far as the character work and the mystery part of it. Um, but I can totally see that, and I'm wondering if if it was a short film, if the ending would be a little more of a payoff. You know, because yeah. yeah, I feel like we have invested a lot in these characters and we don't get a we don't get a big payoff, I guess, with with them. There's not they don't tie up the the loose ends of the characters, I guess, enough for right. uh, for, I guess, a, a common like, you know, theatrical narrative. But but yeah, no, I'm, I'm a fan. Check check it out. I'll, I'll make sure I put links to the streaming in the in the show notes. And spread spread the word. I think this is something. This is one of those films that, for some reason, has never really ascended the heights of, you know, on, on people's lists. Uh, right. And I think people just maybe haven't got around to seeing it. But I definitely think that it's a, uh, it's something worth paying attention to. 
Right. Right. When it, when I talked about it on Twitter, I got a whole bunch of people uh, up in my comments saying, oh, man, I saw that film when I was a kid, too. And, and it messed me up for, for weeks, for months. <laughs> cool, okay. And so I think that the audience is definitely there for it. And maybe it'll get kind of a resurgence like uh, like Halloween three or, or, you know, any of the other films that we now we now or Halloween six. Oh, or Halloween Sex, yes. <laughs> Films that we now hold as beloved classics. See, uh, that's it. See, the Halloween Six isn't yet a beloved classic, but it will be when my hey, work is done. We'll keep chipping away. <laughs> it will. It will reach its plate. The producer is it? The producer's cut. Is that what, is the that producer's the, cut. Yeah, we don't talk about the theatrical cut. Right, right, that's right. What? The producer's cut available on uh, from Screen Factory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have, a, I'll have an Amazon affiliate link in the show notes for all of you if you guys exactly. want. <laughs> the five people that want to buy that Blu-ray. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Um, yes, everyone, check this out. And uh, I think that wraps up Fire in the Sky. Did you have any last words on Fire in the Sky or... I think I think we've thoroughly. No, I think we covered it. That was it's it's worth a revisit. You yeah. should watch the movie, and if you have an eight year old <laughs> who who likes horror yeah. or is inclined towards it, go ahead and traumatize them and, and let them watch <laughs> this movie, and you know turn out the lights and and turn up the volume and and just be ready to pay for their therapy for the next couple of years. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't look at look at look at. Read, look, read your kid. You know what your kid's into. You know what will traumatize and what won't. And, uh, you know, as 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 a parent, don't don't be like the crazy uncle just throwing this on for for like, you know, if you're if your niece or nephew just hang right, out, right. maybe, you know, talk to the parents a little bit. But uh, if you're a parent like myself and you see your kids kind of dabbling in horror and sci fi and, and like my daughter and my son, my son just finally he's. He's 11 and he just finally saw it and uh, he he had trouble sleeping that night, but he's he's the, the new one. Yeah. Yeah. He's oh, he's dipping his toe into the horror. He didn't oh, what want a way to. to dip your toe into it. He fought it. He fought it for a long time and my daughter convinced him to, to watch it. <laughs> oh, boy. So but yeah, you know, feel it out. But yeah, this is definitely on my list for a good introductory genre film for a for your little uh little rug rats yeah um my my oldest you you definitely have to know your kid because (laughs) my oldest he can handle slashers he's 10 Mm -hmm. um but that's only because he is really into makeup effects and then uh special effects and trying to figure out like the way a kid would watch a magician over and over again to try and figure out how the trick works. Yeah. And so that's why he's into slashers. And so if your kid is not into that, <laughs> maybe don't show them uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're raising a little, uh, a little Tom Savini for sure. That's what, yeah, that's kind of, uh, it looks yeah. like that's where he's going. That's where he's headed. He's uh, learning about, I mean, it's educational. He is learning about human anatomy. Yeah, learning about <laughs> you know synthetics and and prosthetics and how things work and, and it's actually Science pretty cool to watch. Him. He is because we yeah. can't afford you know like uh, we can't afford like the fancy stuff to make a life cast or anything like that. He has to figure <laughs> out and Google things and, and learn how these these chemicals and and materials work with uh, next to each other. And so yeah, awesome. it it does force some um, education. Very nice. We may have to start a side project, uh, raising genre loving kids with <laughs> Anya and Sean. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There'd be there would be fodder for it every single week. We have Fright Night Friday <clears throat> weekly. Nice. Well, Anya Stanley, thank you for spending some time with me and talking about Fire in the Sky. And uh, when I was thinking about this, you immediately immediately came to mind because you have been a champion of this film now and then. And when I saw your Twitter uh, feed explode when you mentioned it, I was like, yeah, it's time. It's time to cover this film. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on. Where can people find you? And uh, you are working. It's I guess it's a long time coming, but you are working on a book. You've been involved in some books. So if you can take uh, takes a little bit of time and let us know where we can find your writing and what you're working on and, and all that stuff. In general, you can find my uh, writing on AnyaWrites.com, A-N-Y-A Writes.com. And that's where I have all of my film reviews and uh, links to uh, my past column at Daily Grindhouse where I would watch I – w- I was going through all of the video nasties. Um, I still am and I'm doing that for a book right now in which I go through all of the, the core 72 uh, video nasties. And, and talk about those that video nesties that were banned in England in the 80s for a while. And uh, so that's in progress right now. But I do have a chapter coming out in a book called Scared Sacred about religious uh, horror uh, and religion in horror. Mm. And yeah, that's coming from House <clears throat> of Leaves Publishing. And they just started a, a, a crowdfunding campaign for that. And so... Um, I have a chapter on H.P. Lovecraft and the inherent atheism that comes across in his writing and in his stories and even in movie adaptations of his work. Very nice. Uh, You may have to be a guest on The Armchair Philosopher in October because I'm planning (gasps) a spooky month and uh, that might be ripe for discussion. Lovecraft? Lovecraft Lovecraft and atheism and all that stuff. In that Absolutely. Chapter. Would do you think you can cover like an hour with uh, with that subject? Oh, easily, easily. I had to cover a whole chapter. Yeah, fuck yeah, we're doing it. Okay, you're <laughs> okay. here first, folks. Uh, you, this isn't the first. Uh, this, well, you, I mean, you've been on the screamcast and stuff like that. I mean, you're this is this ain't your first rodeo on yeah, a screamingpods.com show. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Anything? Uh, anything else? Uh, no, no, that's about it. Um, oh, I do have a column on Dread Central, uh, a gender bashing column. It's called Gender Bashing. Oh, and yes. I, God damn this That's such a great <laughs> column. I love it so much. I look at horror films <laughs> from a gendered perspective. I talk about toxic masculinity. <sighs> I talk about catfighting and cliques between uh, girls in high school and the teen slasher films, all kinds of stuff. Uh, changes every month. Sometimes we have a <laughs> themed month. Sometimes We're actually pushing for a dick month at Dread yeah, Central, but the okay. editor... Jonathan Barcan, he will not go for it, but uh, we're okay. we're wearing well, him down. Well, yeah, I'll, look it, I'll I'll bug him as well. <laughs> I will definitely bug Jonathan. We need to have Dick Month. He's gonna <laughs> yell at me in the Slack. He's totally gonna yell at me. That's okay. Uh, awesome, awesome. Well, fantastic. Yeah, that column is great. So everyone, go go read that column. Read the comments. <laughs> because, oh jeez. Because, because I don't. She is pushing some toxic masculinity buttons. And is glorious. Uh, you, I mean, but you've received some shit from some people, and that's something that you know. That's something we should, we'll, we'll bring up when you and I talk for Armchair Philosopher for sure. Uh, we'll bring up some toxic masculinity and stuff like that. Some of the shit that you've had to deal with because you know, look, guys, don't be assholes. <laughs> it's a if general rule of the internet. If, if, if even if you don't agree with an article or whatever, just don't be an asshole. That's, 
I don't understand why it's so hard. So, but check out yeah. the column. It's great. Um, the one I think the one I'm thinking of is when you wrote on Predator and um, yeah, some, men some were dude not bros, happy about some that. dude bros did not like that article. Right, I shouldn't say all men. It was like straight white dude bro men <laughs> that were very upset with me. The dudes that live on protein shakes and creatine. Yeah, they and thought I was bells. dogging on the movie, and I was not. I love that movie, but uh, right, they did not. I, they did not appreciate the critiques. What? And I I got that from that. I mean, that article is plain as day. That you love the film. I don't understand. All right. Um, well, <laughs> we can talk forever and we better wrap it up because uh, we're just going to start talking shop now. And uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll stop before we do that. So thank you all for listening to Xenopod from the year 5000. I am Sean DeRager. Your guest has been Anya Stanley. Anya, thank you so much again for joining me. And uh, I guess we'll talk to all of you next time. <laughs>